Continuing in our series in the book of Ecclesiastes from chapter 8, pay careful attention. This is God's holy word. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, even though one sees no sleep day or night, then I saw all the work of God that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let us give thanks to God. Father, we thank you for the riches of wisdom and knowledge contained within your word. And we thank you that in Christ are hidden all the riches of knowledge and wisdom. Open our hearts to your word this morning and grant us the posture of mind to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you have ever watched a debate between a Christian and an atheist, you will have at some point likely heard the atheist accuse the Christian of making a God of the gaps fallacy. This usually happens right after the Christian makes a particularly great point about how there are areas of scientific knowledge that are profoundly uncertain. For example, there is a profound gap, to put it mildly, in scientific knowledge about the origin of biological life on Earth. Materialistic scientists, they simply cannot account for the very first replicating cell. And the more that we learn about the awe-inspiring machinery, the cellular machinery that's necessary for uh, single-cell reproduction, the wider this gap becomes. Of course, there is no scientific explanation for the uh, origin of the first life because God didn't do it that way. There was no first cell. God created uh, multicellular organisms and so-called simple cell organisms all at the same time with the word of his mouth with a divine voila. Atheists, of course, refuse to accept the idea that God worked directly in the universe that way. And so they insist there must be a material explanation. For them, closing the gap between current knowledge and plausible explanation, it's just a matter of time. And so for them, the, the Christian's willingness to accept a gap because we believe in God's direct acts of creation, for them, that's just an excuse to give up on more origin of life research. But really, if you peel away the layers of their objection, it's not just our disinterest, disinterest in origin of life research that bothers them. They're infuriated by the very notion that some questions are and always will be beyond the scope of scientific inquiry. Accepting limits on knowledge is blasphemy against the atheist's religion. But in our text today, we're going to see that God has indeed set many limits on human knowledge. There are questions too lofty for us to comprehend. And if we insist on pressing these limits, if we demand access into the hidden mysteries of the universe, we will experience futility and vexation. In our text from Ecclesiastes today, chapter 7 and 8, we're going to follow Solomon as he continues to explore his overarching question by applying it to the context of limited human knowledge. But since this series has been intermittent, we do need to do a quick review, and let's start with what that question is. What is that driving question in the book of Ecclesiastes? Well, in chapter 1, verse 3, uh, Solomon lays out his main question, which is, what does a man gain? What does he 
benefit? What does he profit from all of his labor, all of his toil in which he toils under the sun? And if we're going to understand the message of Ecclesiastes and interpret it properly, we have to understand a few key concepts, including a key word and a key context. The key word we need to understand is the word vanity. Um, so in your Bibles, you probably see it says vanity, vanity of vanity. Maybe it says meaningless, meaningless, or futile, futile. Um, that word in Hebrew is hebel. And while that word can carry some negative connotations like it does in our translation, really it just means um, misty or elusive or vaporous, something you can't grasp. And so it can carry negative connotations uh, like our translations tend to give it. But not necessarily. It's a little bit more open than that. It's an important concept to keep in mind as you study this book. The second critical concept we need to understand is the context. As Solomon is pursuing his question of what do we gain from all our profit, he is limiting his scope of inquiry strictly to our days under the sun, from cradle to grave. He's not speculating about eternity. He's not asking about eternal rewards, though that's an important thing to understand. In his context, he wants to know, what about now? We spend a lot of time toiling and working and laboring. What should we expect to gain and benefit from all of that toil in which we toil every day under the sun? And then the, the other thing we need to understand about this book is as he explores it in various contexts, he actually has two different answers. He has his first answer, which actually takes up the majority of the text, where he explores and looks for an answer and he comes up with nothing comes up with nothing. There is no gain that he can hope for and expect from his toil under the sun. But when we dig deeper and we follow him down to his conclusions, he actually comes around to a second answer. And that's really his ultimate answer. And his ultimate answer is that while there's no absolute direct uh, relationship between what we can expect from our toil, a gain or a profit, what God gives us by his gift and by his grace is the, is the ability to just enjoy the toil itself, to find contentment and joy in the toil, and also enjoy the simple benefits that are derived from that toil. And so in this sermon, we, we've had three sermons so far in the, in, in the series. The first one, we covered chapters one and two, where Solomon introduces his question. He talks about how he looked for answers in, in different ways. He looked for answers from nature. He looked for answers from philosophy, from his accomplishments, from pursuing pleasure, and he found nothing in any of those areas. And yet he comes, comes to his ultimate conclusion at the end of chapter 2. Then in our second sermon, we focused on chapter 3, which deals with seeking um, gain and toil given the variability of time under the sun, that there's a time for every season, uh, time for every matter under heaven. And given the variability of time and all the things we might encounter, how can we hope to have any real lasting gain from what we do in our, in our toil? And again, he says, there isn't any except at the end of chapter three, that God gives us the gift of enjoying the toil itself and its simple benefits. Then last time in chapter, uh, in our third sermon in chapters four through six, Solomon examined the topic of gain and toil under the sun, given the existence of oppression under the sun, and how oppression destroys the very results of the fruits of our labor, and how that is a terrible um, undermining of God's blessings. And again, because of so much oppression under the sun, uh, the ability to find gain and toil is elusive. And yet, again, at the end of that passage, he comes back to his final uh, ultimate answer that if we can enjoy the toil itself and be content in the work itself, that's the blessing of God. That's the gift of God.
And so today, we'll be picking up um, in chapters 7 and 8. Actually, we're going to uh, back up to the last few verses that we left off of chapter 6. And we're going to follow him as he asks this question about what do we gain from our toil, given the fact that under the sun, our ability to know what's going on in our lives and what our futures hold is so limited. And I just wanted to give you a quick heads up that chapter 7 is a lot longer than chapter 8. It also has a lot of proverbial couplets, and each one is going to require a little bit of commentary. So we're going to spend most of our time in chapter 7. And chapter 8 summarizes and applies everything. And we're going to have to breeze through that fairly quickly. Just wanted to give you a heads up so that when we're 35 minutes in and you're like, we haven't even got to chapter 8 yet, we'll finish, we'll finish on time-ish. <clears throat> chapter 6, verse 10. Whatever one is has been named already, for it is known that he is man, and he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. Since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? For who knows what is good for man in life, all the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? Our passage today is going to focus on what we can or more precisely, what we cannot know about our lives under the sun. And throughout the passage, he's going to be making a contrast between two different paths, two different ways of living. One way that lives by God's wisdom without striving for perfect knowledge or demanding perfect outcomes, but humbly accepts the limits that God has set upon us. And then the other kind of life, the life that demands certainty, that seeks to control everything in order to secure what they desire under the sun. This contrast will be made evident as we work through the passage, but I want you to take note of verse 11 and something Solomon asks there. He says, how is man the better? For who knows what is good for man in life? And as we work through these chapters, I want you to listen carefully for how often Solomon asks this question about the better way. The better way. Not the absolute best way in every case or the perfect way, or the way that guarantees outcomes, but rather the better way. The better way in life is indeed better, but it's not always perfect. Now, Solomon is not speaking about the kinds of decisions um, that would be answered by God's ultimate law, right? So if you have a decision whether to steal or not steal, you do not need wisdom. You need obedience. But there are plenty of cases in life, plenty of situations where we have to make a decision by wisdom where we do not have all the information that we might want, where we do not know what the outcome will be. And sometimes, frankly, we have to decide between alternatives, neither of which we really prefer. But we make the best of it. As believers, we can do this because we trust God. We don't need perfection in our lives because we have a perfect God. We can accept unexpected outcomes because we know that God sees the big picture and we don't need to. But for the person who doesn't fear God, for the one not trusting in the Lord, they have no such rest. They have to trust in themselves. They have to believe that someone out there has figured out the right thing to do in every situation. And so they seek authorities that have done the research and have the data that prove the best path to perfect outcomes. The idea that there is no such perfect knowledge or that all they could hope for would be a better alternative with no guarantees, that's as offensive to them 
as the God of the gaps fallacy is to the atheist. They must believe that somewhere out there is a perfect answer, even if they don't have it yet. But these dreams of perfect solutions are ultimately striving after the wind. And instead, we need to learn how to walk in God's better path of wisdom. And so chapter 7 begins instructing us and teaching about us about how to walk in that path, beginning with the biggest lesson we need to learn in life. Chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. God's better way of wisdom always begins by remembering our mortality. We are like grass that springs up and soon perishes. That's why Solomon exhorts us not to neglect the house of mourning. He says it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. We cannot walk humbly in the path of wisdom without numbering our days. That's the big picture frame. That is absolutely necessary to walking in God's better path of wisdom. So don't skip out on funerals. Those are really important moments in life. Not only, of course, to reflect on the life of the one who has died, but they are prime opportunities to grow in this fundamental and primary lesson of God's way of wisdom. We must learn to fear him, knowing that our lives are a vapor. But for those who vainly strive to control their own lives, they, they don't even want to contemplate their death. They want to act as if such a thing is never going to happen. Some go so far as to trust in human knowledge that they think they can escape death through cryogenic freezing or some other kind of nonsense. But sober-mindedness about the brevity and fragility of life, that is the starting point. That is where the path, the better path of wisdom begins. It's where it begins, but of course there are many other lessons we need to learn in God's path of wisdom. Verse 5 teaches us that it is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool. This also is vanity. The better path of wisdom begins by remembering our mortality, but it's maintained in part as we accept correction and rebuke from the wise. Now, going to a funeral and mourning and receiving a rebuke from the wise, these are pretty heavy experiences, um, and we can be glad that we don't have to go to a funeral every single day, and we can also be glad and, and hope that we don't need to be rebuked by the wise every single day, hopefully. But when it comes to the vain, to the unbelievers, they are impervious to the corrections of the wise. Why? Because they have the experts. They have the scientific data. They are so self-certain in their knowledge. They believe it's perfect knowledge. And so if you try to correct them and, and bring them some pushback and suggest some alternative things they might want to consider, they want none of that. They are not open to rebuke. And they will instead just turn and, and crackle like thorns in their laughter and mockery and scorning of your wisdom. 
Now, if you remember back in chapter six through four through six, Solomon dealt with this question of oppression under the sun, and um, and he pulls these themes through. We talked about that before the layered nature of the book, and here we find an example of how he's taking a topic from the last section and pulling it through. In verse seven, he says, "Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason, and a bribe debases the heart." When sound justice is working properly in a society. It brings stability and security. It preserves and it protects the fruit of our hands, our property. And since the entire answer, the ultimate answer to the question of what do we gain from our work under the, our toil under the sun is enjoyment of the work and of its benefits. When oppression comes in and destroys those lives and destroys that property, it is indeed a terrible evil, full of Uh, of oppression that destroys the fruits of our labor. And Solomon underscores that here, and he points out a particular species of oppression, namely bribery, which leads to the miscarriage of justice. And that kind of injustice, it can completely obliterate the work of our hands. A person's labor in building a business their entire lives can be completely undone through one unjust decision. Just think of of Jack Phillips and Baron L. Stutzman, laboring to build their businesses, and by one incredibly foolish and absurd decision, all that they worked for is ruined. When these things happen, we can lose confidence in our basic security. And because of the failure of justice, it undermines our willingness to work hard and invest in the future. It completely undermines that. I mean, who wants to work hard their whole life only to see all the profits that they gain stolen through taxation? And... Taxation, by the way, is very much a form of bribery. I'll vote for you if you promise to take someone else's money and give it to me. Oppression and bribery, they kill our hope for a better future. And hope for the future and the ability to enjoy what we, what we gain, that is so important to the fabric that God has established. We're supposed to have these goals. Verse 8 says, the end of a thing is better than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. The better path of walking in God's wisdom, it directs us to set goals, to pursue them, and to start and finish many projects. That's the rhythm of life. We start projects. We work hard to complete them. And then we enjoy the success. That's the part of the fabric of God's blessing in life. And it's such a grievous evil when that better path of wisdom is intruded upon by vain unbelievers who think they have superior knowledge. They know what your goals ought to be better than you do. They know how to accomplish your goals better than you do. But in their technocratic oppression, they strive after the wind, even as they ruin the work of millions. And when we see this kind of oppression and injustice in the world, it really can make us pretty mad. And so Solomon pulls another thread through from his previous topic because he talked about then when we face oppression and that righteous indignation that can rise up, we better be careful with how we react. Verse 9 says, Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. When we seize these kinds of injustices and oppression, which are pretty much everywhere you look these days, how they are ruining businesses, ruining blessings, that righteous anger, that indignation, it, it is right there, and, and it is a fitting re- response. However, we have got to make sure that that anger doesn't rest in our hearts. If that anger rests 
in your hearts, then all of a sudden you're going to be stewing on all of these things. You're going to be constantly focused and obsessed by these things. You know, We have to watch out for how much news we have access to and how we're constantly bombarded with our, and having our, our indignation provoked by it. We have got to be careful of those sources that pander to and essentially sell outrage. We have to be on guard that that information and our reaction, that it doesn't rest in our heart. Because that is not God's way of wisdom. That's the path of folly. If we let the anger uh, rest in our hearts, we're going to become cynical curmudgeons, which is his own kind of trap. Verse 10 says, don't say, where were the former days? Why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. We have to be careful because our, our outrage, when it's continually provoked, can cause us to kind of look back and say, oh, remember the good old days? Remember uh, how good it was uh, in the Clinton administration compared to now? I mean, we'll take that over what we have today. We cannot idolize the past. We have to remember Jesus is king now, today, and forever. And he is now progressively putting all of his enemies under his feet. And he has promised that his chosen instrument for the victory of the gospel in the, church, in the, in the world, the church, he has promised that the world, the gates of hell, cannot withstand our onslaught. Now, it may be true um, that as you look at the history that, uh, of the progress of the gospel over time, that it's ups and downs, right? It's not a straight line going up. There's like a stock ticker with these ups and downs. And it may very well be true that we're on one of those downward slopes at the moment. You know, God may be chastising us, teaching us from past unfaithfulness that we need to repent and turn away from these things. But nevertheless, the stock ticker, it's going to go back up. And it's going to reach new heights. It's going to reach even more glorious heights. And so we cannot look back and say, oh, the good old days. We have to look forward to the work that Christ is going to do in uh, and through us. It can be helpful to look back, to analyze where we've gone wrong and repent, but always looking forward to what God will do in the future. Instead of living in the past, we need to walk in God's better way of wisdom. And if we do that, then we might have something to leave to our children, a better future for our children. And that's a good thing. Verse 11 says, wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. When we're properly oriented toward God and we're obeying his precepts and accepting his limits and practicing wisdom, we're going to navigate life in a better way, not a perfect way, not a, not a way that's without trials or setbacks, but in a better way. And when we obey the Lord this way, you're going to find that the fruit of prudence and godly wisdom commonly results in wealth. It results in wealth. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not preaching a health and wealth gospel here. In fact, if you think about the health and wealth gospel that's much more akin to the vain, godless way of thinking about knowledge, that there's some perfect solution, some perfect system, some perfect way of, of ensuring that God's will is going to happen, right? Just do X, Y, or Z, and God will give you that Mercedes Benz. Or you know, just name and claim your million dollars, and if you have the right kind of faith, God's going to give it to you, guaranteed. You know, of course, don't forget to send in that generous faith donation. That's an important key ingredient to this spiritual program for success. That kind of program is like the world's vain approach. They want certainty. 
But no, God's wisdom does not work that way. But that said, when you walk in wisdom and practice sound judgment, you're going to find that the outcome does result in wealth. You're going to be better off having made good godly decisions and followed wisdom than if you had done the opposite and practiced folly. And when you do, that wealth can accumulate, and it's a blessing to be able to then give that to your children in an inheritance. And of course, while we want to leave something for our children, and that is a very good thing, what we really want to leave our children is this understanding on the limitation of knowledge and on the better way that God has in the path of wisdom. And so God goes to work to make sure that we understand this lesson. Verses 13 and 14, absolutely key verses to this passage. Consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. These are absolutely critical verses. We must embrace and understand what God is doing in his work to deliberately act both to bless, but also to bring adversity into our lives, to put a crimp in our perfect plans so that we learn to face our limits and ultimately that we learn to trust in him. And so we must not ever formulate practice that allow us to discover the perfect will of God. There is no prayer of Jabez that always results in perfect outcomes. No, God is actively working to put a wrench in every grand scheme of man. This is his intentional, deliberate work to prevent us from establishing these kinds of systems and instead to exercise wisdom and discretion and to trust him in our days under the sun. And so Solomon points out that even when we are walking in the better path of wisdom, sometimes, by God's design, the results are varied. Verse 15 says, I have seen everything in my days of vanity. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. Do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Do not be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp this, and also not remove your hand from the other, for he who fears God will escape them all. Because God is active in the world, and because he is teaching us to trust him and not in ourselves or in our own knowledge, he allows outcomes that we would not expect. The wicked are destined to destruction, but sometimes they live long and prosper. And of course, we all know plenty of righteous souls who have died young or faced tragic failures. God has set limits even in our pursuit of wisdom itself. It says, do not be overly wise. Or I think more what he's getting at is how we pursue wisdom even is important. You see, we're so wired to want to flatten things out into perfect systems rather than taking trusting God that we can turn even God's better path of wisdom and turn it into some kind of plan and absolute laws that guarantee outcomes, right? We want some kind of a spiritual checklist to run through, right? I have a decision to make. Did I pray about it? Check. Uh, did I seek counsel about it? Check. Does it go against any of God's revealed commandments? No. Check. Okay, great. God's good. It's going to work for sure. No. 
God may very well just choose to send you an adversity instead so that you get back in line, accept the limits that he has set, and simply trust him and enjoy the things he's given to you without having to know the big picture. God's wisdom is not meant as an alternate system for perfect outcomes. No, it's an entirely different program, one that requires us to trust him. The way of wisdom is better, even when the outcomes aren't guaranteed. And so, having cautioned us from overdoing wisdom, or really having the wrong expectations about the way wisdom works, he does reaffirm that wisdom is, is better. Verse 19, wisdom strengthens the wise. More than ten rulers of this city. Despite the fact that there are God-ordained limits, even in the better path of wisdom, that path is still better. Better than ten scientists at the CDC, Better than 10 bureaucrats at the FDA. Better than 10 scientific studies that show some supposed fact-based evidence for social policy. Perfect fact-based knowledge as some kind of a final authority for human behavior. That is a pipe dream. And it's disobedient. And God will act to undermine it if we turn to trust in it. But there's another reason why such an approach to knowledge is bound to fail. And that's because the people that are involved in determining this so-called alternate path of knowledge, they can't escape the effects of sin in their work. Social scientists they like to pretend like they've, that they've checked their biases at the door and that their motives are pure. But that's never the case. Verse 20 says, for there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. We can't escape sin. No matter how clinically we engage in studies, people and politics will always policy. And now we might nod and agree about this observation when we apply it to technocrats and the administrative state, but never forget that sin and self-deception, that's at work at you, in you. And it's at work in me. Verse 21 says, do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. The kind of godly wisdom that leads to the better path has to apply the reality of sin and self-deception to our own lives. Before we get indignant about the sins of others when we see it, check the plank in your eye. Remember, you're guilty too. Godly wisdom always has to have that character of humility in it. James 3.17 says, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. So when you've been offended by others, remember, remove the plank from your eye. Maintain a posture of forgiveness. Because we have been forgiven so much in Christ, we must forgive others. Solomon concludes chapter 7 by summarizing the futility of seeking absolute knowledge. He says in verse 23, all this I have proved by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. As for that, which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? I applied my heart to know, to search, and to seek out wisdom, and the reason for things, and to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. And I find, more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. 
Here's what I have found, said the preacher, adding one thing to another, to find out the reason which my soul seeks, but I cannot find. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Truly, this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. The demand for perfect knowledge, for the ultimate reason for things, is far too deep to discover. It's beyond us. And it's deliberately hidden from us by God himself. Nevertheless, in our sinful scheming, we look for answers to the unanswerable. We demand solutions for problems that are unsolvable. We look for alternate foundations for knowledge that don't begin with the fear of Yahweh. But all of these schemes lead to madness and to folly and to death. Now, in this section, you may have noticed, I don't know if you picked up on it, but he says some things about women in it, um, that the, they're a woman whose heart is snares and nets. And then he seems to indicate that like one out of a thousand guys walks in wisdom, but no women do. We need to comment on that. I want to make a couple clarifications. But let's, let's first just leave on the table the possibility that Solomon may have had a slightly jaded view of women. I think that supposition is valid because he disobediently took 700 wives and then added to that 300 concubines, which happens to add up to 1,000. And he did this in direct disobedience to God's word. First Kings 11 explicitly forbade the kings from multiplying wives because it would turn their hearts away from the Lord. I'm content to discount this statement, this slight disproportion here uh, between his view of the sexes. I mean, there could have been some confirmation bias of his own, right? Like when you take a thousand women all disobediently and you take that sample and you say, I can't find one out of a thousand. Well, it's not that it's not hard to understand that when you disobediently take foreign wives, that none of them measure up to the Proverbs, Proverbs 31 standard. So he may have been a little jaded. Let's just grant that. But also, let's remember that uh, in, Sol in the book of Proverbs, Solomon describes the path of wisdom and the path of folly as ladies. There's lady wisdom who teaches us uh, the path of maturity and teaches us how to walk in wisdom. And then there's lady folly who leads us into destruction. And clearly here, um, he is recalling this personification of the path of folly as the woman whose hands are, uh, whose heart is snares and nets. But let's not miss the main point. Solomon is not here commending men because, you know, hey, guys, good job. One out of a thousand. You got it. Nice. He's not commending men. He's basically telling us we are all full of sinful scheming. We are all in a place of guilt and uh, sin before God. And apart from the gospel of God's grace, we would all be ensnared and enslaved. But God, in his mercy, he is rich in grace and he's generous in his gifts. And he has saved us from our lusts and our appetites and our scheming. God's grace to us um, comes through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul reminds us in Colossians 2, he says, We are knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. And knowledge. The path of wisdom is better. And the path of wisdom in Christ is enriched to the fullest. Now, as we come to chapter 8, Solomon is going to shift um, from this, uh, these questions about pursuing absolute knowledge and the futility of that. And he's going to apply it 
under different contexts, different ways in which this might be tested. In verse 1, he says, Who is like a wise man, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the sternness of his face is changed. You know, when we relinquish that demand for absolute knowledge, and instead we learn to walk in faith and trust through God's wisdom, that kind of faith-fueled wisdom, that kind of wisdom transforms our lives completely. It softens the sternness of our countenance. That comes from that vain, fruitless, impossible search for perfect knowledge and teaches us instead to trust our God. That makes our face shine. That's the better path that leads to joy and peace and contentment. But, you know, maintaining that kind of contentment and joy, it's challenging because there are all sorts of circumstances under the sun that can threaten to undermine it. And he, he lists out one here in, starting in verse 2. He says, I say, keep the king's commandment for the sake of your oath to God. Do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand for an evil thing, for he does whatever pleases him. Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful. And a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment, because for every matter there is a time and judgment. Though the misery of a man increases greatly, for he does not know what will happen. So who can tell him when it will occur? It would be nice, wouldn't it, to live under godly rulers? I mean, we should be able to live in happy, humble submission to rulers who serve their people as they deal with all matter, all manner of practical governments. And I don't want to have to deal with all the kind of stuff that, that governors and administrators deal with. And when governors are doing rightly, we really shouldn't second guess them. We shouldn't demand they prove that all of their decisions are right, that they've been vetted and tested and studied for and guaranteed perfect outcomes. No, governors in their work, they have to exercise wisdom and discretion in the face of limited knowledge, just like we do. And so we can't demand a different standard for them than we have in our own lives. And in a stable, proper society, we ought to be able to show proper deference to governors and administrators. However, our current administrators are at best a mix. I mean, let's, let's be fair. There are plenty of, of people in, in the administration and in government that are serving. Desire, they desire to serve. They stay within their bounds. They're doing their best, but they have their own limited constraints. But you know what? There are also many outright tyrants who are demanding that they submit to, that we submit to their so-called fact-based claims of perfect scientific knowledge and that this must be obeyed and never denied. And in many cases, the policies themselves are outright evil. Now, we are commanded not to take a stand against the king in an evil thing. But when the king is doing an evil thing, then we are obligated to stand with Yahweh and resist the evil king. And so we need lots of wisdom and discretion. We need to know when a policymaker may simply be in error because they, like us, don't have all the knowledge they need, but they have to make a decision. And in those cases, we should not be hasty to depart from their governance. But we also need to know when they are being bald-faced liars, power-hungry despots, and operating outside their jurisdiction, when they're being disobedient to higher authorities and sinning in what they are declaring, when they are in rebellion against the king of kings. We need wisdom 
when it comes to our relationship to civil government. And sometimes we do have to take a stand against an evil king. And that's difficult because more often than not, it's a losing proposition. After all, they have the power. But when they are resisting God, when they are acting in an evil way, we must resist even if we lose. And we can do that because we trust in God. And we know that God will right every wrong in the end. Verse 8 says, No one has power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit. And no one has power in the day of death. There is no release from that war, and wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. All this I have seen and applied my heart to every work that is done under the sun. There is a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried, who had come and gone from the place of holiness, and they were forgotten in the city where they had done so. This also is vanity. One of the ways that we persevere in our peace and our contentment in the face of wicked rulers in the world is to rest, knowing that even if God, in his providence, permits the wicked to thrive for a season or to succeed in their plans for a few generations, no one escapes his ultimate judgment. No one has power over the spirit and no one has power over the day of death. You know, just as we have to accept the reality that our works under the sun will soon enough be completely forgotten, we can take some solace in the fact that no matter what the wicked do, they have the same situation. Whatever works they accomplish in their wickedness, those two are going to be forgotten. And then they face God's eternal judgment. We might not see that judgment under the sun, but God is faithful. So regardless of what we see in the world, Despite the fact that it can appear that for a season the wicked have dominion, never doubt that God's way of wisdom is better. It's better. Verses 11 through 14 say, Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity which occurs on earth, that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. I said, this also is vanity. When the wicked get the upper hand for a season and act according to their own wisdom, they can do a lot of damage. They can turn a lot of things upside down. When justice is thwarted, which leads to even more wickedness and emboldens the wicked all the more, this becomes a perpetuating cycle, downward cycle. And so what are we supposed to do when living in a context like that? Well, we simply resolve in our heart, it will be well with those who fear God. Wisdom that begins with the fear of the Lord is better, regardless of what we see, regardless of what we encounter in the world. It is better. Unbelieving social scientists, they can run all the studies they want. They can collect all the data they want on what they think is the better way, what will lead to the better path. And, you know, ironically, whenever they do do these happiness surveys, studies, whatever, guess what they discover? Turns out if you want to be happy in life, Work hard, get married, stay married, have kids, go to church. Who knew? 
course, we knew because Solomon told us this thousands of years ago. And verse 15, he comes around again to his ultimate question and his ultimate answer. So I commend enjoyment because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat and drink and be merry. For this will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun. God gives us life. And by his grace, he gives us the capacity to let go of our demand for omniscience and to be content with our lot. We can go to work, live our lives, exercise wisdom and discretion according to his word, and be better off than any other way of life. There is nothing better. Fellowship with God through Jesus Christ enriches our lives under the sun, gives us so much to enjoy, even though we know there are no guarantees on our outcomes. Those who trust in the Lord, even the trials and adversities that God ordains, they always make us better. God's way of faith and trust of walking simply in the path of wisdom leads to blessings poured down in good measure, shaken together and running over. And so we conclude this morning just reading the last two verses, which we began with. And when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, even though one sees no sleep day or night, then I saw the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. Let's pray. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Father, help us to quiet our souls and to relinquish our futures into your hands and to trust you. Thank you for making our lives better, so much better, because we have been delivered from the destruction of the wicked and instead have found grace and mercy and peace in our Lord Jesus Christ. And while we do not know what tomorrow may bring, we give you thanks for the blessings we enjoy today. And we know that after our last day under the sun, we'll enjoy pleasures forevermore. Amen.